compete as much as you can. Um, the more you compete, the more you learn about how to compete, right? That's obvious. It's, it, it's so like, no matter what you do in life, if you do a lot of it, you'll get better at it, right? So Welcome back to the Players Pursuits podcast, episode five. This is a fun one. I got Austin Truslow on Corn Ferry Tour slash Asian Tour slash Dakotas Tour slash PGA Tour player. We'll, we'll kind of hit up on all that, but he just got full status for the Asian Tour this year. Um, you've definitely seen a video of him practicing, playing, whether you know it or not. Yet. Austin, it is great to have you on. How are, how are things going and where are you right now? I never know what continent you're on. Yeah, uh, things are going well. Thanks for having me on. I am in Tampa, Florida, at home, in, like in my house at home. Okay, and, so fi uh, finally in the home base, not always yeah. living out of the suitcase. <laughs> yeah, getting ready to head over to Malaysia in about 10 days. Okay, perfect. So we'll, we'll, we'll cover the Asian tour stuff, but let's, let's talk about how we kind of got to where we are. For those that don't know, um, Austin and I actually graduated high school together um, down in Florida, Lake Mary, Florida, both kind of training full-time at the Mike Bender Golf Academy. Um, so Austin, what, I, tell us a little bit more about your, your come up through junior golf, both where you lived, where you're from, um, but also... I mean, you're probably Mike Bender's longest tenured student right now? Probably one of them, yeah, if not the longest. Uh, yeah, I'm from New Smyrna Beach, Florida, just a small beach town just south of Daytona Beach. I uh, grew up playing at the New Smyrna Muni, Sugar Mill Country Club, and a little club called Hidden Lakes. And, uh, you know, I've always loved playing golf. I've played it since I was four or five years old. And I played other sports growing up and didn't play golf exclusively until high school. Um, and in high school, I played golf at Spruce Creek High School and Lake Mary Prep School in Lake Mary. And, um, you know, I was, a, I was a decent junior golfer uh, from ages 8 through 14. And then uh, in high school, I just, you know, gradually got better and better. And, you know, I ended up playing in, you know, kind of the AJGA invitationals, invitational events. And my junior, senior year of high school, I won three AJGAs in a row and, you know, got into the top five of the polo rankings and, you know, kind of got to experience the highest level of junior golf. And, uh, yeah, so I, I ended my junior golf career on a very high note. Um, but I kind of got to play all levels of junior golf, you know, from the local Volusia Flagler uh, junior golf events, you know, to the Hurricane Tour, to the Florida Junior Tour, and then, you know, eventually getting into some more invitational stuff, like, later in high school. Yeah, well, I, I remember, you know, we met probably a junior year of high school, and, yeah, I, you know, there was kind of this, oh, Austin's coming to live nearby so you can practice all the time. I'm like, who's Austin? Oh, he's, he's a good player. He's a good player. And um, Mike's like, listen, like, he's really good. And then over the next 18 months or so, you went from a good junior in Florida to, uh, what was the high watermark, number two junior in the country? Yeah, on the polo rankings, I was second, and I, I think all the, you know, golf week and, and junior golf scoreboard, I was still top 10, but the best ranking was the polo ranking. All right, let's talk about kind of day-to-day -day at um, Mike Bender's Academy you know, I, I was I was a kind of a late addition. I got there when I was like 16, but you were already well versed in kind of what goes on there, playing with the mini tour guys already. Um, wh what does that upbringing teach you as a player? You know, at each level, you don't know what you don't know, and so you go. You know, even though you were excelling at one level, whether it's on the local kind of junior circuit or the state circuit, um, you just start to play harder courses and play with better players and travel more and learn, you know, how to kind of transition week in, week out. And uh, I think you learn so much about how you have to play golf in terms of managing your time, managing your practices. Uh, you know, practice rounds, that's a big thing that you learn, especially as a junior golfer, as you play more competitive events. And then you kind of go, uh, as you play with better players, you notice the things that they do well, the things that, you know, you didn't realize good players do, you know, course management stuff, shot making things. 
Um, and, and then just kind of the technology that comes with it, you know, there's always a bit of a culture shock when you grow up, you know, getting a new set every two years. And then as you get into the higher levels, you know, club companies will start giving you equipment for free. So then you start tinkering with all that stuff and it's fun, but it's not necessarily productive to just constantly be changing things. And so like at each level, like John Weir, you know, my good friend and caddy, says like new level new devil and i i kind of that resonates with me because it it really is like as you climb up in in the golf world and play different tours and play with better players it's like you just kind of notice the the little incremental things that you can do to get better and be more competitive yeah you have have kind of played at truly every level um, from junior golf to amateur golf to pro golf, kind of skirted the college golf world a little bit. What went into um, your decision to turn pro um, at a young age? Well, it wasn't, you know, a plan that I'd had for years or anything. I just, I came back to Florida after my time at University of Virginia, and I was going to class at Rollins College, and I scheduled my classes to, you know, be in school from about 3.30 p.m. till about 9 p.m., and, you know, I'd be on campus three, four days a week, and so I was practicing a lot, you know, I was getting a little bit better, um, you know, I was playing all the mini tour stuff in the Central Florida area, and then the Dakotas tour in the summer, and, you know, it was May of 2000. 15, uh, you know, I turned pro and leading up to that, the real reason was, you know, I was playing mini tour events already. I figured I might as well be eligible to make money, you know? Yeah. Stop, stop earning the public's gift cards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Frank on the moonlight tour gives the amateurs gift cards of your choice. And I think at the time you were limited to about 500 or $700 or so. And, and yeah, so it, it, the decision was really an economic decision, but it, it was also just a convenience decision because I, I really wasn't continuing to play a lot of elite amateur golf anyways because of my, you know, my school schedule. And, you know, the elite amateur events require a lot of travel. So if you're still in college and you're not really in a traditional golf program, it's very difficult to travel, you know, to different states and compete. And so I was already competing basically in my backyard and in the Orlando area. And so I figured that that, you know, might be the best way for me to get better. Um, And it's just one way to do it. You know, not many guys have, have gone that avenue, but at the time it just seemed to be the best decision for me. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, it, it really worked out. You had more professional experience by the time you would have finished college than than any of the kids coming out. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's not perfect for everybody. Um, you know, there's, there's a camaraderie, a college golf team aspect of it. That's a lot of fun, all that. But you got your degree. We're already playing pro golf. And it set you up really nicely kind of moving forward. So... You know, during the school year, going to school, playing mini tour stuff in Florida, coming, living at my house, playing Dakota's tour in the summers. What was that? Three, four years? Um, yeah, you know, four summers. Yeah. 15 through 18. And playing with a higher level, higher caliber of player than you probably would in college definitely sets you up for playing that next level. One thing I wanted to dive into with you especially is uh, Q school and kind of what what is that uh, pressure cooker like? Um, you've gone through it a number of times, made it through other years, not so much, but made it through at most levels. Yeah, well, I didn't make it through any Q schools till 2018. I had done, you know, Corn Ferry Q school in the fall of 2015 uh, Latin American Q school in uh, the winter of 2016. Then I had done the same exact thing again in uh, you know 2016, 2017, and I think I did one or two Canadian tour you know Q schools in there. And you know I went uh, three three years in a row of not qualifying for any tour, uh, which was really disappointing because I felt like my game was 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 solid. It's 
you know, it wasn't ready to play on the PGA Tour, um, but it was it was definitely good enough to get through Q schools. And I, uh, you know, I, I just think that I had some maturity um, deficits in terms of just like managing the uh, managing the nerves and you know just sticking to my game plan and being able to prepare the right way and you know it's just timing you know like I, it's a very cliche thing to say in professional golf but you know timing is is very important and you know also in that 2015 2016 those years I was I was my chipping was really bad and I wasn't quite using like the technique I use today and so uh, that you know it was there was so much added pressure on me to hit the ball well um, in those Q schools especially when you're playing on you know tight muddy Bermuda in Florida which thankfully living in Florida I was able to do all those Q schools in Florida right you know they have them um, the, the Canadian tour qualifiers here the Latin American tour qualifiers here and, and the Corn Ferry tour you can basically play you know, two or all three stages in, in Florida, or including pre-Q, if you add that on. So, you know, I was just struggling with my chipping a little bit. I had a little bit more to learn about managing my game and, and preparing for big events. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting my first status the December of 2018, which, you know, in the end turned out great because that was when I would have been doing my first Q school out of college anyways. You know, I would have graduated in, in May of 2018 following, you know, the path that I was planning to originally. And so it was kind of like a nice graduation gift. You know, I got on the Asian <laughs> tour and that just went from there. And then I got, you know, good status on the Corn Ferry tour in 2019, which was, you know, I literally like got my degree the week or two before I, you know, I got Corn Ferry Tour status because um, I took an extra year to get through. So because I, I had a light, a pretty light course load in order to play more golf. And I was always willing to push back my degree if I did earn status, right? Like the Q schools, I wasn't planning to do Q school and then get through and then still just go to school. I was, the plan was if I get status, you know, I'll take a you know, leave of absence and then see how things go. And if I, you know, if things work out, I might not go back. If not, you know, I'll just finish my degree. But the way it worked out, I just never, I never, you know, got full status while, while doing it. So the timing worked out well there. And it would have been, you know, basically the same had I gone to school for four years. So looking back at the timing of everything, the timeline, um, you know, it really was around the time that you went one-handed with the wedge, and that's where I say most of you have seen Austin Chip or play, whether you know it or not. He's the one-handed guy at the U.S. Open. Um, one-handed chipper at the U.S. Open. Uh, but that was truly when he started getting status different places. That's when exemptions started coming through. Performance, you know, finishes definitely um, started coming to be. So let's let's talk about that now. What why are you chipping one-handed? Um, and, and then I can provide some background as to the reaction that came of it. Yeah, well, you know, my senior year of high school that summer, I just started, you know, really having poor contact with my chipping. Uh, I, I have a vivid memory of when it kind of started was at the, at the Players Amateur at Berkeley Hall in South Carolina. I think it would have been in like June or July of 2014 and I remember the UVA coach Bowen Sargent was out there watching me and I got to a par five and had a pretty easy you know straightforward chip and it was an easy birdie and you know I bladed it over the green and made bogey and uh, you know from there it was just a real grind uh, the next really three years, you know, trying to figure things out. And I tried all sorts of different methods. You know, I would do drills on my left foot, drills on my right foot. Um, you know, I was working, I'd work on dead wrist. I'd work on soft and wristy. I'd work on, you know, a hard pivot. I'd work on no rotation. Um, and then I uh, decided, I started doing a one-handed drill, you know, left-handed and right-handed. And the right-handed drill was just really there to kind of, you know, soften the swing and then, you know, allow the, the angle to release and transition and just use the bounce by kind of adding loft. 
and um, I started doing it with lower irons too to be able to hit them off tight lies. I find it's a lot easier to hit, you know, a tight grainy lie with with lower loft because it forces you, you know, to use the bounce and to use kind of a more effective loft on the wedge. You know, it's very easy if you're using a lob wedge into a tight grainy lie to, you know, try to create speed by really de-lofting it. Um, and I shouldn't say speed, but trying to create the distance that you need through de-lofting it. And, um, you know, it, was a, it wasn't very long, in, you know, between when I started the one-handed drill and, and implementing it in tournament golf. It probably only took about a month or two. And it was actually, it was with you in uh, South Dakota, I think, in the summer. It might have been 2016, but I feel like it was probably 2017. Um, yeah, it was then, one of those years. I know you had kind of gotten a lesson, gotten it as a drill. All yeah, of a sudden, yeah. you were doing it in chipping contests, and then all of a sudden, it was in practice rounds. And then the, yeah. I think I'm going to do this if I get this shot in a tournament. And I was like, you're nuts. But um, yeah. I think I think how you got everyone on board, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the, the quote that I kind of remember is, listen, I'm a good ball striker. I, I just need to be decent around the greens. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. like I, I tell anyone that'll listen, Austin's a top five long iron player in the world when he's when he's firing on all cylinders, and I don't even know if that's really a hot debate if you actually see it in person. Um, so, just making sure you're not losing shots is almost the priority in that situation. And I know uh, an instructor, a mentor of, of both of us, often talks about like having your superpower, um, yeah. knowing what you're great at, and you know, leaning on that rather than always trying to make your weaknesses your strengths. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, yeah, and, and that, that was around the time when status started coming around. I got into a PGA Tour event. I went down and watched and top 10 there. So one thing I want to mention or ask you about is if I remember the timeline was right, you went over, got full Asian, you know, one Asian Q school, uh, which is impressive in itself. Come back, play PGA Tour event, top 10. How do you decide where to take your career from there? I think one of the difficult parts, if you don't have full PGA Tour status or, or wherever, is trying to decide where to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very excited to play the Asian Tour in 2019. You know, it was the first place I'd earned good status. Um, and I got got lucky and got into that Puerto Rico Open event and got top 10 and then got in the Honda and I put up a good effort at the Honda just missed the cup by one and at the time you know my agent was looking at the different avenues to get to the Corn Ferry PGA Tour because ultimately at that time that seemed like the best way to go and during that during that season, if you finished top 200 on the FedEx Cup points list, even as a non-exempt member, you could get into the Corn Ferry Tour playoffs, which used to be, you know, the top 75 or so Corn Ferry Tour players and, you know, the bottom 75 or so PGA Tour players. And, you know, it really wasn't an unrealistic thing to accomplish at that point because with the top 10, I think I only needed about you know, one or two cuts, you know, where I had, you know, rel- you know, tw- top, top 30-ish finishes. And so when you make a cut on the PGA Tour, you get in the Mondays the rest of the year. And so I didn't have to do the pre-qualifier. So I was actually not really planning to go and do all the Mondays. I was really just, at first, I was kind of planning to do both. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to play the Asian Tour events that I'm in, and then the week said I'm not playing Asian tour events and I'm home, I'll do the Mondays. But then I went to, I was supposed to go to Jakarta in, I don't know, it was May or June or something. And I uh, ended up spending two and a half days in the Philadelphia airport. And it was just one of these crazy you know, ex- life experiences where you just feel like, the the world is you know the universe is telling you okay well let's let's try to simplify our life and you know maybe this is a sign that we just got to stay stay in the U.S. and just do the Mondays because that it is a brutal travel schedule going back to Asia you know that's 
something that I've, you know, picked up on again just recently. But the, yeah, it just seemed like, you know, I didn't have all the starts on Asian Tour. And I'd al I was already somewhat close to being able to play the Corn Ferry Tour playoffs or the PGA, those playoffs, which, you know, you could end up with a PGA Tour card at the end of that. So it just seemed clear that that was probably the best opportunity I had at the time. And, you know, I did the Mondays the rest of the year and I got through two other ones. So I played four events. You know, I didn't make the cuts in those events. I played fine, you know, but... At that time, my game was good, and I think I could have I could have definitely made more cuts and played better, but I it ever I hadn't really played tour golf yet. You know, I'd only played a, a couple uh, Asian tour events and the events in Australia, and um, you know I hadn't played the Corn Ferry Tour. I'd only played that you know Puerto Rico Open, the Honda Classic, and the Puerto Rico Open was a is is an easier event for me to play in because I'd played that course as a junior golfer I think for three or four years, and you know it's it's an off week event. There aren't you know the the crazy galleries aren't out there. You know you're not you know warming up to the on the range next to Rory or anything like. <laughs> it's just it's a it was a little bit more of a comfortable environment for someone that hadn't played a lot of tour golf. Um, but, you know, I, I really gained a lot of confidence in 2019 by playing those PGA Tour events, and I, I wasn't intimidated by, you know, by the tour environment by the end of the year, having played a few more events, and uh, it gave me a lot of confidence, even though I didn't have the success that I, that I you know, wanted. By the time Q School came around, I, I felt a lot more confident in my ability to belong, you know, on the Corn Ferry Tour. And so I think that, you know, the, playing those qualifiers and having some success in those qualifiers and then also, you know, pl playing a few PGA Tour events by the time Q School came around, I felt more ready than ever uh, to do Q School that year. And it was, you know, the first time I got through second stage and, you know, played pretty well at final stage, missed full status by literally the last person on the course. And then I went into 2020 um, knowing that I'd get some starts and, and just try to go from there. Yeah, so that was where really, I like to say that's where seeing your name on my social media feeds went from, you know, the local stuff or just friends or, I mean, your family to, oh, golf week. Oh, Monday Q. Like, it started becoming a little bit, that was really the next level. And, and that's how pro golf works. There's very distinct levels to each um, area of play, each tour as you kind of progress your way up. So what is playing full-time Corn Ferry Tour-like, and then obviously you were having a pretty good season uh, before kind of some, some hurdles got in the way, and, and we can run through those quick and talk about where you're at now. Yeah, you know, the Corn Ferry Tour is highly, highly competitive. The players are, you know, the best college players, you know, great PGA Tour players that, you know, might have had a bad season the previous year, or even a decent season, then, you know, keep full status, and then you have past winners. I mean, the level of play on the Corn Ferry Tour is so high. Uh, I'd say the biggest difference between the Corn Ferry Tour and the PGA Tour is just the caliber of courses. You know, you have a little bit more of the kind of hybrid between oh, many tour courses. It's designed and, with advanced textile technology that moves with you with four-way stretch and moisture-wicking properties that keep you cool and dry. Visit shell.shop today and get 40% off the entire golf collection using promo code PLAYERPURSUITS. Now, back to the podcast with your host, Alex Shattuck. Yeah, so what what happened, you know, obviously 2020 rocked the world. I, you know, a ton happened um, in pro golf outside pro golf, um, but what, what what happened that year for you? And I know there was a rough month in there. Yeah, well, in 2021. Oh, 21, yeah. Yeah, in 2021. A after the double year of trying to, yeah, yeah that, the know, whole corn fairy mess. 2021, it was just a tough year. I mean, 2022 was too, but 2021 more so, you know, I would um, you know, played pretty well in 2020, and they combined the two years. Uh, the the PGA Tour decided. Yes, to combine. nobody got elevated. Rather, yeah. they did a or continuation into the next year, like a yeah, little wrap. So nobody got elevated. Nobody lost their you know status that they had earned in 2019. 
and uh, you know, I had a full schedule, and so the the season was supposed to start, at, or it did start in Sarasota, and you know, the morning of the first round, I yeah, I had an early tea time, and I was kind of half asleep, and I. I was going to the bathroom and I, I I jammed my my finger in like a really sturdy door going into going into the stall and uh, it was you know it just it was it hurt but I, I knew I was gonna be fine but I just couldn't grip the club that day and uh, you know I rested I had to withdraw and so I rested it for about I don't know six days or actually I don't I didn't even have the rest period from that because I went to a friend's charity event uh, that weekend. I wasn't supposed to go to it because I was planning to be playing in the tournament, but on Sunday I wasn't even playing golf. I was riding around in a cart supporting my friend's event, and uh, one of his friends cold shanked a five iron and hit me like right in the ankle uh, on the bone. And so... You know, I was re- at that time I was resting my finger, but then for the next, you know, 12 days I was just resting my ankle and not walking on it because I just had some nothing broke or fractured. It was just, you know, bad bone bruising. Um and so I didn't play, you know, between the ankle and and the finger. I, I think it was about, you know, two and a half weeks or so. And then, you know, I, I was able to play at the next event in Louisiana. And so I go to Louisiana. I'm, I'm rusty. I just, I'm not hitting it very well. And then I, I did a, I, I made a, an error that no pro should make. And I decided to switch golf balls, like literally two days before the tournament. Um, and I switched to a slightly firmer golf ball. Uh, and I was really hitting these knuckly drivers that were not well controlled. Um, the spin rates were probably between, you know, 17 and 1900 RPMs. And I, I you know, I didn't, wasn't hitting my irons well and, you know, I missed the cut by a bunch there. And so, you know, I had the weekend there to practice and kind of get ready for Savannah the following week, which I had played great at Savannah the previous year, finished, I think third place. And it's golf that I'm very familiar with. You know, it's Bermuda. It's only, you know, four hours north of where I grew up. It has a nice, you know, feel that I'm used to. And I really like that course. And so I went there, and I played really well the first two days. I was, I think, a, tied for seventh going into the weekend. And uh, Friday afternoon, I started feeling sick. I, I had a fever, body aches you know, just, just weakness, you know, and, uh, you know, I went to bed early for that Friday night, played Saturday, felt, you know, bad the whole round, didn't, didn't play terribly Saturday, Uh, I think I was, you know, I was still top 15, top 20 at the end of Saturday, and, you know, one of the things about the, the top level pro golf is it, you have to have a decent round every round, Yeah. you know, you don't have to play 10 out of 10 every round, but it is amazing how much a tournament can change because the level of play is so high that you have one bad round and you can drop 40 spots. Especially, well, I mean, if you shoot even par, you might get passed from a guy firing 62, eight shots behind you. Yeah, exactly. And so I didn't drop much that Saturday, um, but I, I was more sick Saturday. And then sun. And look, you can play great golf being sick, like. It happens all the time. I mean, in fact, it's like almost kind of a blessing sometimes when guys get sick, they play better. Um, but for, you know, whatever reason, I didn't play great on Sunday. You know, I finished poorly. I, I think I started off the round fine, but really struggled, you know, kind of mid, like late mid in the round. And I think I shot three over and ended up finishing tied for 46th or 7th or something like that. And so it was a disappointing week. You know, it was a week where I felt good on the course. I, I switched back to the golf ball I was using before. So I, you know, I felt like I was starting to kind of get into rhythm. Disappointing week, but it was still a made cut. It was still a check, and it was still something to build on. Uh, so then I went, I drove down the next day to Sandestin, Florida for the following event, checked in. Um, they, at that time, they were having the weekly COVID tests, and I was concerned that I was going to test positive. I didn't. I, 
I actually didn't really think I had COVID because I'd had COVID relatively close to when this, like I'd had it close, you know, within a year Recently. or so of 2021. So I didn't, I, I thought maybe it was, you know, a cold or a flu or something, you know, and so I tested, you know, what was, I went to the course Mon you know, Tuesday, played a practice round, hadn't had the results back. And then, you know, Tuesday, late afternoon, I got the call for a call from the tour saying that I tested positive for COVID. And, you know, what sucked about it is, you know, obviously I, I might've gotten other people sick over the weekend and Monday, but also like by the time Tuesday night came around, I felt normal again. You know, I felt maybe a little achy, but my fever had gone away by, you know, Sunday night or Monday morning and I felt decent, but, you know, couldn't play. So, you know, I had to withdraw those first four events. It was withdraw, miscut, you know, tied for 47th or whatever. And then, and then another withdraw. And so, you know, it was, it was a rough start to the season. Um, but, you know, I went home and, uh, you know, after the quarantine, I got ready for the next event, which was in Las Vegas. And then, you know, I flew out to Vegas and leading up to the event, my wrist, you know, I, I'd had, I'd had some wrist pain before, but I'd never had to take a lot of time off for it. But the night before the first round, I got a light workout in and I could feel like a light throbbing on the top of my wrist. And it was kind of like in that when you palm the ground and put pressure on it, like that, that's what was hurting it. And so, you know, I, I felt a little bit of like some pain before the first, before that round even, but I really didn't think much of it. I was like, okay, like I, I've played golf with some slight wrist pain before, no big deal. And I go out and play and I, I wasn't playing particularly well. And the wrist was really hurting more than normal throughout the round. And then, I uh, got to the 18th hole and it was kind of a short, quirky par four and it was straight down wind and you kind of needed to lay up about like 250 short of a bunker and with how firm and fast it was, it was just basically like a punch five iron. And I got steep on a five iron and uh, my hands passed, you know, kind of like this, you know, after I went from like a bowed position to extension real quick and I, I just felt this pop in, in my wrist and it, it hurt, you know, like it hurt horribly. And, and I just, I walked down the fairway, was hoping, you know, maybe it was just kind of something moving around in there, nothing yeah. too bad. And then I tried gripping the club and I couldn't take it back. And so I was like, oh shit, like this is, <laughs> this is a family show, right? <laughs> I, was I, like, oh, I was like, oh God, you know, I, I can't, I can't make a swing. Um, so I actually played the last hole one handed. I think I like one handed a seven iron down and then making double is stupid. <laughs> but I, but part of me was thinking, you know what, maybe it feels better tomorrow and you know, I can still try to play and salvage a, a decent week or whatever, but it became clear, you know, that it got so swollen and it, the pain was intense, you know, all night, all morning. And so I withdrew from that event and then, you know, went home, rested it, uh, iced it, and, you know, just anyways, long story short, it never really got better. Right. Um, and so I, I, uh, I consulted with a lot of doctors, you know, was very kind of, I put a lot of thought into whatever decision I made. I, you know, I got cortisone shots approved by the tour in the beginning to just see if I could, you know, play through and just maybe not ha have to avoid surgery. But, you know, the imaging showed that I had, you know, a tear of my scapulonate ligament and dorsal capsule. Um, and, it's, you know, it's a painful injury, especially for golf. And, you know, I tried to play with the cortisone injections and they might have helped a little bit, but it was painful, you know, every day. And uh, ultimately just decided to get surgery, which was a really tough decision because at that time, I was, you know, about 55th on the points, and I knew that if I could finish top 75 at the end of the year, I would keep full status for the next year. And I knew that if I didn't play the rest of the season, it was unlikely I would finish in the top 75. In fact, it was, it was very possible that I wouldn't even finish in the top 100. Uh, so, you know, the, the tour was good in the sense that they – 
they they ran good, you know, projections of what they expected the points to be, and they said, look, you might finish top 85, and if you finish top 85, you'll still have a decent status for the next year. And so when I heard that, I was like, okay, you know, the wrist isn't getting better. I'm not able to play. Get the surgery. Um, so I got the surgery, and then you know, I got that in June of of 2021. And you know, fast forward to March of March of 2022, I, you know, I did the physical therapy. I did, um, you know, basically everything that I I needed to do to get it better. And it just I didn't have the mobility to to get it, to to be able to generate speed and and to swing without pain. And I was starting to have pain in the ulnar side of my wrist. And I just realized I wasn't going to be able to play unless I did something. Um, so I I decided just to scrap 2022 and get it and get another procedure done because you know I consulted with some doctors and they they found a good way of being able to loosen it up um, that would allow me to get more flexion and uh, you know ultimately that thankfully you know I got that second surgery in June of 2022 and was able to start practicing in uh, by October of of that of that year and. You know, it's been relatively good since. I mean, I've had some times where I've had to take a week or two off here. And, you know, on four, I mean, I took a little bit of time off in December, about four weeks. But, uh, you know, being able to play again has been has been great. And, uh, you know, I just take some preventative measures with the wrist now. Yeah, I mean, the types of decisions you have to make uh, when you're hurt or when you're looking at surgery and, and it's your career. I mean, it, yeah. that's how you're making money. That's how you're getting by. That's what you do all day, every day. Um, like that, that's a dramatic decision that has to be made. So, you know, how long was the total time off? Like a, a year, year and a half? What, what was, it was the... About, it was April to... From Vegas to it Hawaii? Was, it was about... In turn, it was about eighteen months, but yeah. competitive play was about twenty-one months. Yeah, and and you did one of the craziest things I've heard of. Uh, you know, finally getting healthy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go play a Monday qualifier for a PGA Tour event. Um, you know, dragged me out of my caddy retirement, um, and that was that was the start to a really wild 2023, where there was really like. The highs and the lows of someone coming back. I mean, you 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 came back with a vengeance. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. you know, I mean, it, it was it, it was a very unusual year because if you told me at the beginning of the year that I would qualify, you know, and get in the events I got in, I w- I would be you know thrilled because, mm-hmm. you know, I I really wasn't certain whether I would be able to play a full year or like what you know how healthy I could be. Shell Golf Apparel is designed with advanced textile technology that moves with you, with four-way stretch and moisture-wicking properties that keep you cool and dry. Visit shell.shop today and get 40% off the entire golf collection using promo code PLAYERPURSUITS. Now, back to the podcast with your host, Alex Shattuck. And, and what, was, what did the, total, what did the you know, totals end up being? It, Two PGA Tour events, the U.S. Open, three if you include that, a couple of Corn Ferry events. Yeah. Like for someone coming into the year with virtually no status, like that—that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was great. Um, the weird, the craziest thing about it was within a within about six weeks of of starting to practice again in 2021, I was playing well. You know, yeah. like it, it, it came back quickly and, you know, I, I do owe, I owe that to, to the swing that I've built with Mike Bender. I really believe that if I didn't have the fundamentals and the understanding of, of my swing and then also like just kind of the, the repetitions and, you know, the feedback loops that we, we'd done for, you know, 15 plus years at that point. I don't know whether I would have been able to come back and play as well as I did quickly. You know, the first round of golf I played, played, which was within like three weeks of of hitting balls for the first time in a year and a half. I shot the first round I played was a bogey free sixty eight. You know, hitting fairways, hitting greens, like riding a bike, Austin. Huh? 
It's like riding a bike. Yeah, no, it was like I I didn't really tell many people at the time because I didn't want to get ahead of myself. But that between that October and December, I was playing some really good golf. Like I, I was keeping track of my scores and kind of looking at them to the course ratings because I knew in those Mondays that I was about, I was I was planning to play all the Mondays. And I know you kind of have to be able to shoot a lot of, a lot of rounds at a, about nine better than the course rating, and you need to be averaging you know about six better to be making cuts and everything. And I was doing that. I think. You know, I was around seven to seven and a half on my home courses by December, and then I flew out to to Hawaii to to play the qualifier with you. And you know, you saw you saw how well I was hitting it in the practice rounds and like the ball striking was wasn't an issue. And you're just like, I mean, it's just like I'm. It feels as good as it did in 2020, if not better, at that point. But the thing you're missing was the competitive rounds, and I hadn't. I hadn't had them in, in two years, basically, and I've always been someone that's done much better if I get a lot of consecutive tournaments. Um, I'm not great at taking, you know, two, three months off of competitive play and coming back and still, like, having, having you know, the competitive ability to just make it happen. Like, it's not that I can't do it. It's just historically... I tend to play my best after a long stretch of, of grinding weeks. And I think part of that is you get so used to competing that a competition doesn't even feel like a competition anymore. It's just another day of, of putting in the work. And um, unfortunately, even though I had a, a decent year in many ways, I never really got the competitive reps in because I was doing the Mondays, which are, you know, one-day shootout and um you know the weeks i got in i I didn't make those cuts and so even those weeks i was only playing two days right and and so i i didn't really play a lot of a lot of multiple day tournaments this year um thankfully was able to get three four round tournaments in towards the end of the year you know i played those two corn ferry events made those cuts and then i played a canadian tour event made the cut so I got a little bit of experience at, towards the end of the summer, you know, going into Q school, which was nice. And then I played well at first stage. Um, didn't play, I wouldn't say I played, you know, spectacularly well, but I played, I played pretty well. And um, yeah, so I, I'd say to, to players out there who um, struggle with, with competitive nerves or with, you know, playing as well as in tournaments as you do in practice, I would say the best advice I have is to compete as much as you can. Um, the more you compete, the more you learn about how to compete, right? That's obvious. It's, it, it's so like, no matter what you do in life, if you do a lot of it, you'll get better at it. Right. So, um, that's, uh, that was a lesson from this last year and something that my dad would always t- remind me of. He's like, Austin, I mean, you're playing golf, but you're not playing multiple round tournaments. Like you're, you're just, you're not ready in this, in, you know, knowing the way you are, like in the traditional sense, like you're not really like, even though your game is decent, it almost doesn't matter. Like you would almost rather be playing mediocre and be playing a lot of multiple round tournaments in terms of performing in tournaments than playing great and then like rarely playing. Um, well, and that's how you, you know, from a from a strategic of scheduling standpoint, a player that matches that description is always going to come out ahead if you get a year for it to compound rather than play yeah. shootouts every now and again. But I thought it was really interesting. I want to rewind back to, you know, playing back in Hawaii um, and even before that, how it kind of came back pretty naturally um and that wraps in i was just down in florida hanging out with mike um you know and one thing we were talking about is the value in in sort of taking that motor pattern and just strengthening it as much as possible i know i came back from my own wrist procedure and about nine months i have a video that came back my swing looks identical <laughs> to before yeah. um the wrist surgery because we we have those motor patterns and, and if we can if we can uh, sort of strengthen them uh to the point where you don't know anything else it doesn't go away yeah um, right. and so right. it's it you know it wasn't shocking uh to me that, that you came back playing well it, it was the competitive thing you know taking it from you know, just like getting better, taking it from practice swing to on the range to the course, 
to the tournament, that's a big one. So I remember in the practice round being like, all right, we're either going to make it through this Monday or we're going to shoot 80. I don't know which one, Yeah. Uh, but fortunately it was making I, it through. I kind of felt the same way. I, I was thinking that too. I was like, I had a... I, I put a lot more pressure on myself than I normally would for a Monday because I hadn't competed in so long, and I and more so because I knew I was playing well, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you're playing well, your expectations go up, and you know I know it's not easy to get through a Monday qualifier. I mean, I the first the first three years of my professional golf career, I I was a horrible Monday qualifier. I mean, I was pro- I probably averaged around 74, 75 in the Mondays. Um, no success in the Mondays. And what, um, what, here, let's just put it in perspective. What do you think you averaged in 2023? Uh, oh, high 68s, probably, something yeah. like that. I'd say it's about right. Yeah. You might even be a little higher. High 68s. You might even be a little lower. Probably yeah. sixty-eight point eight or seven or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I played I played well on the Mondays. I, the problem with me for me this year is the Mondays I got through were all you know higher scored Mondays. I didn't shoot, and this is a testament to not playing, in my opinion. I think it, when you're playing a lot of golf, those those you know seven, eight, nine under par rounds are are doable. When you're not when you're not playing a lot of golf. And you're playing well. You can shoot three, four, maybe five under par, you know, somewhat consistently. But but those those rounds where you really put it all together, that sometimes comes from like a deep belief and confidence in your ability to close it and just and keep your foot down and not play tentatively, right? Like when you're playing really well, it's easy to shoot three under. Shell Golf Apparel is designed with advanced textile technology that moves with you, with four-way stretch and moisture-wicking properties that keep you cool and dry. Visit shell.shop today and get 40% off the entire golf collection using promo code PLAYERPURSUITS. Now, back to the podcast with your host, Alex Shattuck. Oh, you got you gotta have you gotta have some level of cockiness that I, I don't have in my body to shoot ten, eleven I mean, under. Shooting three <laughs> under every week is hard, but if you're playing well, uh, you, it's not that hard, right? Like, but shoot, but being able to show up to a qualifier and know that you have to shoot seven, eight, nine under and doing it, that is that is very difficult and so the qualifiers i got through this year you know it was five under at sony five under valero and then the u.s open uh sectionals you know the course was playing tough you know i think i shot maybe five under for the two rounds or something like that and um yeah so i i never qualified through shooting a really low score um, and the weeks I shot under par in every Monday I played last year, you know, I shot between one and five under in every qualifier I played last year. Um, so to the average player, that's unfathomable, but on the pro at the pro level, it's yeah. It's and, needed. But when you're shooting, <laughs> when you're shooting two, three under on a Monday course, you know that you're not playing well enough to, to be a top Corn Ferry Tour player because, oh, yeah. you know, if you if those courses are going to be as easy, you know, easier than the Tour courses. And the Tour courses, you know, are going to be set up harder and you have to probably shoot, you know, four under or better for two rounds to make the cut. So I was, you know, I, I think my expectations were realistic because I'd been around it enough. Like I knew what I had to do. And so I was, even though I was playing well, I was still frustrated with, with the results because especially, especially because I had a lot of rounds where I hit the ball plenty. Well, I drove it well enough and hit my irons well enough to qualify, you know, it was just making those, you know, six to 15 foot birdie putts or, you know, making, or just having an unforced error that was, you know, totally avoidable. Um, things like that that are more frustrating. I'd say decision-making errors are, are, are more frustrating than execution errors in golf. 
Oh, one hundred percent. If I uh, it's, to this day, if I hit a bad shot, those happen. But if you yeah. if you make the bad decision, that's or if, when you hit a good shot and ends up in a bad spot, that's that's your decision making. That those are the frustrating ones. <laughs> exactly. Um. So let's run through quick. Um. I thought I thought your some of your thoughts after the U.S. Open um were really really good for you know future success. Came up with a couple shots short of making the cut, and I don't I don't think you had your best stuff so that's fine um but got to play a practice round with some some elite elite players out there um and it looked to me like you can keep up so what what does that do for you moving forward yeah you know it's you can kind of look at it in a frustrating way like okay well these guys are out there you know tearing it up making millions of dollars and you know i don't have a place to play and I know I can play with them on any given day, right? So like that's frustrating. But no, it's it does it does give you some reassurance and some confidence at the same time because uh, you know these are the best players in the world, and so you know there's no one better than these players, right? You know we got we got to play nine with Victor, and you know watching him do the work he was doing with Mayo was cool, and uh, you know he's obviously an incredible player. Uh, probably the hottest player in the world right now of golf. Um, but you see the way he's hitting the ball, and it's impressive. But it's, you know, you're like, okay, like I, on, a, on my solid days, I can keep up. And um, yeah, you, you, uh, you, you kind of have to put it in perspective. It's like, you know, it, over the course of a year, you have to do the little things to make that, you know, half stroke to stroke average better right because like you know the margins are razor thin on a small sample size you can play with anyone in the world but a victor hovland's bad day is just better than everyone else's bad day right like and um over the course of a year when you fire 50 percent less over par rounds than your average tour guy you know, it's not that his 72 is that impressive. It's that he just doesn't do the 73 that often, right? He doesn't shoot the 74, right? Um, it's just those little incremental improvements that, that really add up. And so, I mean, I've played enough professional golf to know that. And so when I played with him and, you know, guys like Denny McCarthy and, and Patrick Reed, it's like I wasn't surprised that, you know, that I can hit the shots that they can hit, you know, it, that wasn't, that wasn't really news to me. It was more just, you know, what can you do to week in, week out, you know, be just half a stroke better to a stroke better. And, and over the course of the year, I mean, that just adds up like crazy. And everyone listening, that applies to you too, whether it's a 5 handicap, 10 handicap, 20 handicap. It's the same yeah. principle of if you can improve on the margins, clean some things up, over the course of the year, you're still going to have what you would consider your bad rounds, but those bad rounds aren't going to punish your scoring average so bad. Your handicap's going to start going down. It, 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 everything matches. It's just at a, different, a little bit different level. Mm-hmm. All right, so... 2024 it's uh, what's today last day of january 2024 asian tour all right this is this is is where we've ended up after all this all right so um you decide to go over play asian q school kind of last minute just because the way the schedule all worked everything like that go through and fly through it i mean easy enough (laughs) so what what does your 2024 look like well the the way it works in terms of statuses on tours is I believe all tours do this. They have categories of status. Um, the Asian tour has about 29 categories. Uh, and so you obviously want to be a high priority category. You know, the higher the priority category you are, the better a chance you can can have to play in in a single event, if not all the events. And so... I finished 21st at final stage, uh, tied for 21st. But technically, the way they do it 
is they have to they have to you know make they have to make sure there's a difference between each player to be able to rank you priority wise. So they take the final round. If they're ties, they take the final round, and whoever has a better score of the final round gets that. If you tie the final round, they go to the fourth round. And Whatever. very simply put, when a when a tournament you know, when they're filling out a field, it's straight down a priority list. It's straight down a list, right? And and that's sort of where we're going with this conversation. It's nerd talk. You need a PhD to understand everything for every tour, yeah. but just try to keep up. So I finished tied for 21st, but, you know, there was one guy that I tied with that I think, you know, probably beat me the final round or something. So technically I'm the tw- I'm ranked 22nd in this in category 16 which is the category out of Q school um, and so the first few the, the Asian tour has a pretty late beginning of the season um, you know the first event is in Malaysia uh, you know February uh, like 15th or so and as of right now I'm first alternate in the Malaysia. Um, so I think it's very likely I'll get in, you know, so therefore I booked my flights, booked my hotel and my plan is to Austin, do Asian tour events have Mondays? I think maybe a couple, but no, typically not. Got it. Um, so I'm going to fly out the ninth and anyways, to go back to the status. So I'm 22nd in the 16th category. It doesn't look likely I'll get in some of the events in the beginning of the year. But one of the things I like that the Asian Tour does, I'm not sure whether they've always done this or this is a new policy. I believe it's a new policy. Is the, So tours have reshuffles. So what they do is... Where they update the priority list based on the money list. They, yeah. Yeah, the money, or the money list or the points list based on your performance of that season. So what the Asian Tour started doing is... I believe what it is, is they don't have a reshuffle until the last guy in from Q school in the full priority of Q school, meaning top 35, until the last guy in that 35th position has played at least four events. They won't have a reshuffle, meaning I'll probably get likely five events before the first reshuffle. So I'm not, it's, I don't know when the first reshuffle will be, but it's nice to know that I'll get an opportunity to play events before that reshuffle because some other tours will do a reshuffle, you know, four events in or let's just say eight events in. Whether you as someone with status has even played or not. Yeah, exactly. And so if you haven't played in those first four events, I mean, you could be Monday qualifying the rest of the year to get in. Um, so... It looks like, you know, thankfully I'll get some opportunities. I'm not sure exactly what my schedule is yet, which is tough because, you know, when you fly into these countries, you need to get visas. You need to have an, a flight leaving the country, you know, so they know you're not just going to stay there. <laughs> and so that makes it difficult. Or help like, with that, or are you kind of, do you have to manage that on your own? The, the Asian tour can help you, you know, give you information on how to apply for visas um, but, and they, and they keep your passport information on tour in case there are any issues, you know, while traveling or while being in a foreign country, you know, they're pretty good at, at you know, having your information in case there are any, you know, medical or God forbid, like criminal <laughs> issues, right? Like, <laughs> they do all that stuff. Um, but no, you, you kind of have to manage your, you know, your own affairs. And, uh, so I, the plan is to fly into Malaysia the ninth, or which I wouldn't be arriving there till Sunday, um, which I think is the eleventh there. And uh, you know, hopefully, I get in that event before I leave. Um, I would expect to. I mean, you got we got about nine, ten days, so yeah. Hopefully, I, I get up, I get in before. You know, one nice thing about Asian tour. I mean, there are a lot of nice things about Asian Tour, but one good thing in terms of uh, exemptions, I've applied for them for the ones that I'm not in. I don't know what my chances are. I I might (laughs) not get in any of them. But they do have more exemption spots. So in a PGA Tour event, you have typically four sponsors Mm -hmm. exemption spots. An Asian Tour event, typically 10 to maybe 15, even 20 in some of them. So hoping... Hoping I can get in Malaysia, and then the next event's in Oman, and that's part of the international series that the LIV has partnered with the Asian Tour on, which is almost like a tour within a tour. Um, 
where it's higher points, priority, higher money. Um, and, you know, they do have some sort of uh, relationship in terms of graduating into live or to doing the live Q series. Shell Golf Apparel is designed with advanced textile technology that moves with you with four-way stretch and moisture-wicking properties that keep you cool and dry. Visit shell.shop today and get 40% off the entire golf collection using promo code PLAYERPURSUITS. Now, back to the podcast with your host, Alex Shatek. Left, right? Carl, you on? All of a sudden, got into the top 150, full status, all this good stuff. So that's just one, you know, one example. So with Liv partnering with the Asian tour, what what does that look like and what how how does one earn their way on to whether it's Liv or other tours from the Asian tour? And the European tour or DP World Tour is involved here too. Yeah, so the only person that's guaranteed Liv status is the person that finishes number 1 in the international series, which is going to be, you know, a collection of probably seven to ten events uh, throughout the Asian tour schedule. And those those events sometimes are co-sanctioned with other tours. So um, you're not just competing with guys on the Asian tour, you're competing with guys from the DP World Tour, and you're competing with live tour players because a lot of those live tour players want to take advantage of the world ranking points because they don't they aren't competing for world ranking points on the live schedule so they will even though the purses are you know smaller than they're used to they will go to these countries to compete for not just world ranking points but you know some of these events even Malaysia even though the Malaysian event is not a uh, an international series event it does it is part of the RNA's qualifying series for the open so they, there are three spots allocated to the top three guys in the Malaysian Open who are not already qualified for the Open. So there, there are some players that, from the Live Tour that I believe will be competing in Malaysia. Um, and then, you know, this last, the thing with the Live Tour is everything is kind of flowing, right? Like they're, they're making decisions as they go. And so in 2023, they decided you know, pretty later in the pretty late in the year that they were going to have their promotions event, which was basically their Q school. And the top 30 on the international series points list qualified into their Q school. And from there, they all, you know, there are other categories that qualify to the live Q school. But of that, you know, if you finish in the top three, you have full live status. So in theory there, you could kind of say there are four live cards to be given out. Um, Unless for what, maybe you tear up the Asian tour and, you know, finish fourth in Q series and, you know, some guy on the live tour wants to sign you to his team, you know, you never know. There's a lot of, there's, that's an unlikely scenario because they're going to tend to sign guys, you know, from college um, that are, that are really tearing up the college circuit. And I think that's a smart, that's a smart thing for them to do. Um, but yeah, there, there's some politics involved with getting to live, but in terms of getting to live through Asian Tour, that's basically the way you do it. You either win the International Series points or you finish top 30 in the points and then play well at Q School. Um, but, you know, thankfully, I don't know, I don't know how much the, the PIF has pumped money into the Asian Tour, but I do know that the Asian Tour purses are are pretty solid this year. Yeah, they're dramatically bigger than I remember. Yeah, and they don't... They haven't um, they haven't released the full schedule yet. I think there's they still have at least six more events to add, um, and so hopefully the the other events are you know just like that the ones that they have now because they have good purses and uh, yeah I mean the good thing with Asian Tour too is you get good world ranking points. You know if you uh, John Catlin a few years ago worked his way into the top hundred I believe and then got temporary. Um, I believe he got DP World status through that and then got temporary PGA or Corn Ferry status from that. So that's one way of doing it. Uh, I'd say that's probably, if you're playing really good golf, that might be the best bet you have is to get into that temporary, you know, top 100 or, I mean, top 50. I mean, that gets you in majors. So there are different ways to go about it. I mean, all of them are a result of playing good golf. Yeah. Um, 
You can't really game the system, but there is a system to work up. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. There's no there's no secret as to how to go up the system, and you just gotta play good golf. But there 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 are definitely different avenues you can take. Uh, you know, to the DP World Tour, to the PGA Tour, to the Corn Ferry Tour, uh, through Asia. Uh, but honestly, like the Asian tours is a really good tour, and the the purses are bigger than the Corn Ferry Tour now. So. Um, you know, as long as you're fine with taking 30-hour flights and, and grinding <laughs> out in, in different countries, you know, it's a, it's a good way to do it. So uh, You once yeah, told I'll, me you I'll... loved that part of it, Austin. We'll see how much that, that stays, but for now. <laughs> oh, I mean, flying back from Q school is brutal. That was absolutely brutal. <laughs> yeah, you got to get over there, get a home base kind of established and just yeah. sort of just sort of ride it out and, and play good golf on your way back. Uh, but the Asian tour it provides some unbelievable opportunity, and they're they're golf crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, you know? and the courses are good. You know, they yeah. they know how to they know how to run events, and you know it's very professionally done, and it's pretty well it's it's well organized, and you know the people that run it, you know, know what they're doing. Um, you know, Unho Park, the you know director, he you know he played professional golf for decades and you know really follows closely the world of golf and and understands you know what tours are doing to benefit their players you know how to run events better you know just at Q school they had four physios you know at Asian Tour Q school i mean i'm pretty sure the PGA Tour doesn't have physios at Q school um, no you know they had pro v's on the range they had you know pin sheets sent out to the players at 6 p.m. every night you know, they have shuttles running back and forth from the hotels to the course from 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. I mean, they were on top of it. They ran a great, a great event. Um, and I'm sure that I'm sure it's only going to get better. So I'm definitely going to take advantage of the physios. That's something I never really did in, on the Corn Ferry Tour in 2020. But when you're when you're taking, you know, tw when you're traveling for 30 plus hours, you get into the you get into you know, a new country and your body you know whether whether it's not from eating great or from being cramped in a tiny seat for 30 hours like it, it's helpful to have to have those physios for sure <laughs> all right well i think that 2024 is going to be a big one um you obviously have the opportunity that you know been waiting for and it's staring right at right right at us all in the face so yeah. um I think it's going to be good. Is there anything else you want to kind of shout out, get out there? What do you need for the year? Anything like that before we hop off? Um, no, I just I I wish you your podcast and your career the best this year. I think it's going to be a really exciting year. I, you know, it's it's kind of a it's it's chaotic in a way because I don't really know exactly what my schedule is right now and I've you know kind of gonna be flying all over but I'm excited like I I kind of have this like this this good just a good feeling about it um and uh, as long as I you know just keep doing what I'm doing work hard and and keep a good mindset keep the body healthy like I I think it's gonna be a good year well, I think I, I like the way that you're talking through the year where it's almost like the golf is is a given. And when you're that comfortable with the way you're playing or, or that confident with how the golf is going to go and kind of worried about the other things, um, that's usually a good sign because it's just you're playing yeah. free. Yeah, true. All right, Austin. So it's great to have you on. I'm sure we'll do something again. Um, if anyone listening wants more information uh dm me austin whatever um we'll kind of go from there but uh good luck this year thank you that's it i appreciate the it game Thanks, of golf. you got it it's both challenging and rewarding requiring focus concentration and the ability to tune out outside distractions peak performance is achieved through a synergy of body and mind Shell Golf Apparel is designed with advanced textile technology that moves with you, with four-way stretch and moisture-wicking properties that keep you cool and dry. Visit shell.shop today and get 40% off the entire golf collection using promo code PLAYERPURSUITS. Now, back to the podcast with your host, Alex Shattuck.